You are now entering the transit zone. Hello there, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and children. This emblem that you've just seen is tonight the symbol of a historic occasion. The opening of the National Television Service, which of course is your television service. And we hope that tonight, and in the weeks and years to come, that you're going to see and enjoy a lot more of it on ABN 2, ABN Channel 2. My name is Michael Charlton, and I'm your host here tonight. I'm here to welcome you and show you around and let you meet a few of the people who are going to make this service tick. And we're going to show you something, too, of how we bring these people, the entertainers, to your homes. How we bring them to that small, bright screen in your living room that you're watching now. Or perhaps, as many of you are doing, looking through shop windows of television screens in the streets. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. Ninety years ago, in July 1932, a radio announcer, Conrad Charlton, said these words into a microphone. This is the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Then Prime Minister Joseph Lyons, formerly a Labour politician, but founding leader of the United Australia Party after the split of 1931, launched the new national service. And public broadcasting was born in Australia. In 1956, the year of the Melbourne Olympics, his son, Michael Charlton, whom you heard at the head of this podcast, did the same for the launch of ABC television in Australia. So, for more than 60 years, the ABC was an analogue, free-to-wear, strictly advertising-free national media service. First radio, then television as well. In the city centres, where most of us live, and across rural and regional Australia, it became a national fixture in many, probably most, Australian lives. In the United Kingdom, where the BBC model for the ABC started up about a decade earlier, there was no commercial radio or television sector, only public service broadcasting. Hence those pirate radio stations and seismic broadcasting shifts there in the 1960s and in the years following. Here in Australia, we've had both sectors operating side by side since the beginning of radio here. Then came the digital revolution. Along with earlier revolutions such as the emergence of alphabets and writing, printing for mass production in the 15th century, and that cluster of communications technologies in the 19th and 20th centuries, including photography, cinema, radio and television, the digital revolution has fundamentally changed everything. All media information, all content, can now be reduced to digital bits and bytes, the same stuff, very migratable, and very malleable. And along came the internet. Global media, apart from public broadcasting, were intrinsically based on advertising as the business funding model, alongside subscriptions and direct payments. Faster than most had imagined, that media world unraveled. Fast forward to today. We're in the middle of a federal election campaign. The national broadcaster, for a few decades, has been much more intensely contended politically and ideologically. The name Rupert Murdoch has been and remains central to the commercial mediascape in Australia. His antipathy to public broadcasting has been long, unrelenting and uncompromising. Recently, the Scott Morrison federal government, while openly and aggressively anti-ABC in terms of funding cuts, anti-ABC rhetoric and attempted direct interference, and not cooperating with its journalism program for interviews, has settled the corporation's next triennium funding. But the very existence of the ABC and public broadcasting remains an open question, and a highly politicised one. Into that cultural and political space comes a new book, one that advocates in detail for the continuation of a strong, vibrant national broadcaster and public broadcasting. Who Needs the ABC? 
why taking it for granted is no longer an option. Its co-authors are Dr Patrick Mullins, a Canberra-based writer and academic whose books include Tiberius with a Telephone, The Life and Stories of William McMahon, about former Liberal Prime Minister Billy McMahon, and Matthew Rickardson, Professor of Communications at Deakin University here in Melbourne, a former journalist who ran the journalism program at RMIT University for many years. Matthew also sat with Ray Finkelstein QC in the independent media inquiry that reported to the federal government a decade ago now in 2012. Full disclosure, I worked as a broadcast journalist for the ABC on and off from the mid-70s for about 35 years. Matthew Rickardson, Patrick Mullins, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you. Thank you. This term, public broadcasting, we're going to be using this quite a bit in our conversation. And right at the top of the conversation, I want to try and unpack, Matthew and Patrick, exactly what public broadcasting means. And in your book, of course, you go right back to the birth of public broadcasting as radio arrived. And it's fair to say, Matthew, isn't it, that the BBC is the template. And John Reith set some of that bedrock philosophy, didn't he, for what public broadcasting actually is. Here we are in the middle of the digital revolution, and that's transformed that. But let's go back into that history. When we use the phrase public broadcasting, what does it at its very nub actually mean? Well, according to John Reith, who you mentioned, who's the sort of first director general of the BBC, it was about reaching the entire population of the United Kingdom, at that time, it was about a combination of that and of both informing and entertaining the listeners, and they were just listeners at that point, pre-television. That was explicitly set out in the aims of the organisation back then, and at least partly it was in response to the way in which radio was being done in the United States, which was primarily commercially driven and defaulting to the lowest common denominator mass entertainment model already. And Reith was at least partly reacting to that, which he didn't like. That's a kind of bedrock. The other aspect of that is that Reith particularly looked at having many genres. We're still seeing the palimpsest of all that, aren't we, in the ABC today and the BBC. So science, education, religion, that genre approach to broadcasting was laid down very early. That's right. And light entertainment and documentary sort of programs, news, not as well developed at that point, either at the BBC or then at the ABC when it came along. But that breadth, you're right. And you could see it relating to the newspaper world in the sense that newspapers tended at that time and still to cut up the world into what they call rounds or beats in America. You know, science, technology, politics, industrial relations, sport, business, etc., etc. So there's an element of that, but it was made explicit in the goals of the BBC and in the way in which it went about its business early in its years. Patrick, we use the term broadcasting and being an old radio ranger going way back myself, I love that early history of radio. And it's now really almost impossible to imagine being mainly fed on a diet of newspapers to actually hear voices from the distance, music from the distance, entertainment from a distance. That radio thing was really the the spawning of public broadcasting, particularly in the United Kingdom. Absolutely. And I think it's also worth pointing out that in Australia, one of the earliest ABC journalists, Warren Denning, was a, a great fan of radio and actually foresaw that radio had an ability to reach across a country, obviously, but also to do so in a way that was intimate and a way that was immediate. And he you know, first conceived of that idea of, of transmitting news while listening to a horse race over the radio. And certainly, you know, Matthew spoke just then about the news element of the ABC and, and public broadcasting and its connection to newspapers. And of course, we know that for many years, the ABC was highly dependent upon newspapers and commercial news interests uh, to provide news to its listeners. It was a bit rip and read at times, wasn't it, in the early days? Absolutely. Entirely rip and read. But also, one of the things we know is that when the ABC began broadcasting news, the effect and the reception that it had was immediate. People loved it. Politicians loved it, even those on the conservative side of politics. It's a very different state today. Yes, one of the things we just should quickly remind ourselves of is that radio in those early days was all live. The recording came later, and a great pioneer of that, of course, during World War II was Chester Wilmot, who took enormous amounts of gear out into the field to the, to the front and did wire recording. So recording came a fair bit later. So we're talking about a live medium, Patrick, and that's a different sort of thing, that intimacy, that 
direct connection. Things are happening live. It's like theatre of the air in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think the broadcasting of parliamentary procedures in that vein is, is quite an interesting thing too because people were able to hear their elected representatives, their voices interacting with one another, hear what they sounded like, not just what they looked like. So, yeah, of course, it made it quite theatrical in many ways. Matthew, so that template, that BBC template, was really important for the ABC when it started up 90 years ago. That's true. That is true. And I think, without wishing to telescope things, I do think there's a really interesting recent history, let's say, going back to the past two decades, which I think is important to recognise in the sense that by about 2000, when the internet had been around for you know half a decade or so in Australia... And the whole online world was exploding in its reach, in its, in its various different genres and what it could do and so on and so on. There was a, a mood and, and a lot of written, in, particularly in the academic world and particularly among sort of cultural studies, academics and so on, that public broadcasting was this fusty old thing that was on the way out the door. And it was middle-aged white men. It was old-fashioned genres and so on and so on. So I think it's really important to recapture that. At that period, public broadcasting was definitely seen as old-fashioned and on the way out. And I think what's happened in the past 20 years is really both salutary and important in the sense that public broadcasting has come right back into its own for the reasons, in a sense, that it was set up for, but which we thought had become outmoded. And that is that it reaches the entire population as far as possible. And it provides a range of things, entertainment, information, a range of genres and so on. And critically, it provides a kind of bedrock of verifiable information, which is, as we now know, only too well, which is what has just kind of collapsed from beneath us within the social media environment. Now, Social media does a lot of wonderful things and enables a lot of wonderful things. Along with the enabling of wonderful things comes a whole lot of misinformation and even disinformation, which is deliberately planted wrong information, which has meant that that kind of bedrock of verified information is both smaller in the overall aggregate and also is is much more contested. And we only have to look at the way in which misinformation and disinformation has been spread about the pandemic, about obviously both the 2016 and the 2020 American presidential elections and so on. And it's happening here in Australia at the last election, during this election and so on. So the media environment or the environment in which we hear and see and read about things is much, much muddier now. The ABC is covered in a lot of that mud, if you like, and yet it's still attempting to provide that bedrock of verified information, but it's doing it in a completely different environment to, you know, what was happening early on. And that makes things more difficult. Certainly one of the arguments we're making in our book is that it means that the public broadcaster assumes a new and and fresh and urgent relevance in this digital age. Patrick, can we stay pre-digital just for a moment? Because I'm thinking of some of those other big turning points. 1984 was important for the ABC when it became a corporation and began the era of managing directors, the Whiteheads, the Jonathan Shires, the Michelle Guthrie's. But I want to talk a little bit later about Mark Scott, who I see as a pivotal managing director for the digital age. I think he's really important in ABC history. There was a social dimension to the BBC, and I guess by implication to the ABC, cutting across classes, and certainly in Australia, the city-country divide, which is still quite sharp in Australia. So how do you see the ABC in terms of its social role and the way it's now playing into the contention around the ABC, the talk of bias and trustworthiness or not? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. One of the things that struck me quite notably when we were working on the book was that the ABC's reach across the country, in particular into rural and regional areas, is consistent with what Paul Kelly called, you know, the Australian settlement. That idea that you were going to have universal service obligations across the country. So if you could send a letter from one end of the country to the other, it was going to cost, it was going to be cheap enough to do it. You could call from one end of the country to the other. The ABC's ability to broadcast into rural and regional Australia and to broadcast content that informed, that educated and that reflected and also agitated around ideas of of a unified national country, of a single country, were quite important. And I think that this points to one of the areas where the ABC has long 
garnered support and, and enjoyed a bedrock of support in those rural and regional areas. We know, and Matthew and I quote in the book, a succession of national party, formerly country party, leaders singing the ABC's praises because they know the role that it performs in the bush, in rural and regional Australia. And the contrast is always with commercial media organisations who, because of the sparse population of those areas, can't make a kind of monetary return that warrants an ongoing investment and presence in those places. The ABC, however, because of its national reach, because of its obligation to reach every single Australian, has that presence and provides, whether it's news, current affairs, stories of interest, it helps to knit those communities together to bring them in and make them part of a national comedy. The ambit of the ABC's work, I think, is another reason for why it's been so valued. Uh, in the book, Matthew and I trace the ABC's influence on Australia's culture. And we quote from the former chairman of the ABC, Jim Spiegelman, who, who says himself that the ABC is not only this country's most significant cultural institution, but in fact, the ABC's employees, people who would be most familiar with ABC content and its archives and everything, probably themselves don't necessarily apprehend the ambit and the depth and the richness of that contribution. It is an immense cultural institution with a long record, and it's a venerable one for those reasons. But that obviously does, has not prevented it being innovative. And over the last decade and a half, as you alluded with your gesture toward Mark Scott, I think we're seeing reasons for why that venerable institution is responding and, and becoming contentious today. I can't get out of my mind almost the very first job I got when I joined the ABC in Brisbane in the mid-70s, the early mid-70s. The very first job I was thrown into a studio and I did the Queensland River Heights. And that was a good 10-minute read with a big folded-out sheet. I just went through every river and gave the height, <laughs> which is sort of news. It's, uh, it's journalism of a kind, but it was that reaching out to that vast decentralised state. And I knew that people were going, yeah, yeah, our river's on the rise or on the fall. Almost the very first broadcasting job I did for the ABC was reading the river heights. Before we leave unpacking what public broadcasting is, let's talk about a couple of other things. And I just want to jump forward now to 1979 to the creation of SBS, which is also seen as public broadcasting, Matthew, but had a different spawning, didn't it? It had a different impulse for its creation about multiculturalism, about that term ethnic broadcasting. And I also just want to plant in your mind the idea of Channel 4 in the UK as well, which is seen, they use that term, public service broadcasting. That was a different model again. And I also think of some of the European models, like the French model, state broadcasting. So we've got other models circulating around as well, haven't we, apart from that John Reith BBC original model? That's true. All of those things you've said are plus, if you like, central or state-controlled broadcasting and we're more familiar with that in, you know, in China, for example, the you know, China Central Television, where it's it's pretty clear. It's not only in China, but China is one of the most prominent countries where this occurs. You have what you would call a kind of um, conventional-looking television studio and set with presenters and all of the kind of apparatus that we're very familiar with with television, and yet the content. Some of it is straightforward news and information, but you're very, very rare is are you going to see anything much that is scrutinising the Chinese government in the kind of way that the ABC is required to do by its governing act. So China's a representative of that strand of public or state control broadcasting, and it's you know I don't think it's a model to be emulated because a broadcaster becomes in effect a propaganda arm for the government of the day, and so. That is not what we have with the ABC. It's not what we have with the BBC. And, and you can see that very quickly by the amount of contention there is around both the BBC and the ABC uh, in a way that there is not in state-controlled public broadcasters. But that's an important stream of that across that broad spectrum, if I can mix my metaphors there for a moment, that you were alluding to. I was a manager for a period at the ABC of the English Language Service for Radio Australia. And Radio Australia is, to some extent or to a large extent, was hidden from mm. the gaze of the average citizen in Australia. Mm. But projection of soft power. And that becomes a, an acute discussion again, doesn't it, Matthew, with the Solomon Islands? Yes, absolutely. And so, yes, there's another, if you like, slicing the lemon again. There's a, there is that element, which you've mentioned Mark Scott, and he, he gave a speech, I think it's around about 2012, during his period as managing director, where he's explicitly outlined the role of the ABC in providing soft power diplomacy in our region, in the Asia-Pacific region. It's not broadcasting 
which is controlled by the state, but there is certainly an awareness by within the broadcasting outlet and, and within government that there is an element of soft power diplomacy in this. And so that's another strand. I mean, you see that, I think, in the United States with the Voice of America um, broadcasting outlet. And, and you're right, we in Australia, we're kind of blind to the role of Radio Australia and, and whatever the international television arm is called because its name has changed over time because by definition it's broadcast outside of Australia so we kind of don't know and it's unfortunate because the role of both of those broadcasting arms of the ABC has been important historically and at times it's been contentious for a variety of reasons public awareness of it and understanding of it is really quite limited because we're just not the audience for it so it's it's tricky. And shortwave technology itself is a contentious point as well. And people then discovered that perhaps those shortwave transmitters were very useful after all. Well, I, I'm sorry, you have to you'll have to enlighten me on that because I'm not I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Internet wasn't always available to people in outlying islands and archipelagos in the Pacific, yeah, etc. Yeah. So the good old wireless technology still has its attributes. Yeah, yeah. Patrick, to continue our conversation, because part of our conversation today is going to be about political assaults on the ABC, obviously. And the word Murdoch comes up. And I've listened to and read the transcripts of some of those early Murdoch addresses about the BBC, about public broadcasting. James, too, when he was part of the program at News Corp, uh, made speeches very similar. And he has been very vociferous, has Murdoch, about the marketplace and where the ABC fits into that marketplace. An earlier manifestation of that contention and that discussion was during the Brian Johns period when he was managing director of the ABC and what was called the comprehensive service debate. And that was more about genres, wasn't it, Patrick, about more commercial quizzes and comedy and more light entertainment that should be much more serious like Radio National. That's a really important part of the discussion about the role of the ABC. This is before digital, the comprehensive service. Yes. Um, I, I can't pretend to be so familiar with the debates around the Brian Johns period when he was managing director. There has always been this debate about whether or not the ABC should be doing absolutely everything or whether it should be a kind of market failure broadcaster and attending only to those portions where commercial media is not providing content. We had a really good example of that a couple of years ago when the ABC launched what was effectively an attempt to kind of reach out and broaden its demographic appeal. It was explicitly kind of trying to look at targeting young people in that 18 to 35 demographic who were living in you know, Western Sydney and were culturally diverse and so on. I think it was called ABC Every Day or ABC Life. And, and the idea behind it was that it would provide kind of soft content, what we might call lifestyle journalism. So it would be recipes for cooking how to juggle multiple jobs, how to juggle rent, that kind of thing. A lot of it was really interesting stuff. The commercial media organisations led in particular by the Murdoch presses, uh, and Chris Kenny is the name that leaps to mind here as being among the most vociferous and notable critics, basically cried foul and said, this is our territory, back off, get off it, you're not supposed to be here. And the ABC effectively in the end caved in, it, it removed that, that devotion, reconfigured it and buried it in other areas of its offerings. But one of the things that's really notable about it, I think actually quite one of the reasons why it's lamentable that it was done away with, is that the ABC was in that area and doing it without a com and offering that content without a commercial hook in a way that the commercial media organisations do. So it wasn't trying to sell you on a cruise liner to go to Europe and check out some castles, as often we know that certain kinds of lifestyle journalism can be um, compromised by those by those commercial considerations. So that content, I think, was quite appealing, but also unique. And yet it was absolutely of the kind that would be just beaten up by the commercial media organisations. They wanted it. And that's, ex I think, a, an excellent example of the way in which commercial media organisations regard public service broadcasting. They see themselves as being, as having a natural entitlement to absolutely everything and everything that they don't want to touch, they want the ABC to do it. A couple of years ago, Hugh Marks, who was CEO of Nine at that point, appeared at a Senate estimates hearing and said, look, in terms of news in, in commercial and in rural and regional areas, we don't want it. We can't make a buck out of it. The ABC should do it. Um, and that, that, that speaks to their regard. They're just out for a dollar. So there is this debate about what the ABC should be. The ABC, I think, has always pushed back on this idea that it's going to be a market failure broadcaster and saying that we offer a comprehensive service. We have to. And I think this is something that is also notably important. It's not about just simply 
making the ABC dance to a commercial media organization's tune because that would be the natural consequence of saying it's a market failure broadcaster. It's also about ensuring that there is this underlying bedrock of information and content that is appealing to all Australians. I think that has that got to be kind of at the core of what the ABC does. Matthew, do you take the view that Murdoch opposes the ABC and public broadcasting generally, the BBC as well, because of media marketplace concerns, his, his aim to have that media empire, or is it ideological? Does it mesh, in fact, with the Institute of Public Affairs view on the ABC that it should be privatised? Murdoch would prefer not to see that player at all, wouldn't he, in the marketplace? How do you see the Murdoch antipathy? I think it's both, to be honest. I think if you've looked at the history of Rupert Murdoch's very long and very, uh, you know, famous and commercially successful media career, his ability to protect his commercial, his company's commercial self-interest is hyper-vigilant and, and largely very successful. He has been very good at doing that. And so he always has a kind of weather eye out for where um, people might be cutting across his commercial interests. I don't think that's that surprising. What is potentially more difficult is the way in which he will deploy, or he and, and the people who work with him will deploy their the megaphone that they have in their hands, the global megaphone they have in their hands, to achieve their commercial ends. That is, they will use what is at their disposal lots of newspapers, lots of television media as well with Fox News in the United States to achieve those commercial ends. So there's a problem there. On ideological grounds, again, I think if you look at the entire history of Murdoch's career, ideologically, he is in favour of private markets, of free enterprise, and he has a kind of deep-grained hostility to the public provision of services of whatever kind. He wants much greater role for the market, much smaller role for government. That is a consistent through line. Occasionally, he will support a Labor government, whether here in Australia or over in uh, the United Kingdom. But generally speaking, a centrist Labor government, uh, or one that becomes one. And as I said, you've got a long history of his career now, and overwhelmingly, he supports right-wing parties which are in favour of free enterprise. And Margaret Thatcher in, in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the United States particularly supported their push for the privatisation of, of many publicly funded industries. So I think it's both. It's not just one. And I think that the, what's happened in the last decade or so, as with the way in which the media has developed in the online environment, the social media environment, is that it's, it's no longer uh, sufficient to express a view as a media outlet. You have to kind of shout your view. And, and so things get very, very shouty, very, very hyper-partisan. Chris Kenny, who um, Patrick mentioned earlier, he's been shouting at full volume now for about a decade. He used not to shout at full volume. He used to have views, which he would express, often vigorously, but in about the last decade, he's just been shouting, and, and he's by no means alone. And so the kind of prospect for any sort of debate that will occur in good faith between people of different perspectives on the world is just reduced and diminished. And so we have a lot of people yelling and screaming at each other. And again, that is one of the reasons why the ABC is so important in that kind of environment. Since we're talking privatisation and we're circling around the whole Murdoch thing, and I mentioned the Institute of Public Affairs, enlighten me, both of you, what do we actually mean by privatisation? I've never been able to get my head around what they actually mean. Does it mean selling the brand, which I would suggest would dissolve like water through your fingers as soon as you sold it? Are they selling the plant? Are they selling the spectrum? What does privatising the ABC, Matthew, actually mean? In your question is the seed of the answer, which is I don't think the idea is particularly well articulated. I think it's almost as simple as a toddler crashing his fist onto the uh, the high chair and saying, get rid of the ABC. I don't think there's a great deal of intellectual underpinnings beneath it. I think it's that, but I'll, I'll hand over to Patrick to, uh, to talk a bit about that, the sort of manifesto, if we can put it like that, about privatising the ABC. Patrick? The most substantial argument against the ABC has been the Chris Berg and Sinclair Davidson book in 2018 against public broadcasting. And it's articulation of what privatisation actually means is decidedly nebulous. They talk about selling off the equipment. They talk about making a share offering first to ABC staff to take kind of ownership of the channel and the corporation. It is decidedly nebulous. And as Matthew says, it is just like a toddler. 
the thought given to what actually privatization means is just noise. It doesn't make any sense. There's no substance to it. And this comes to kind of one of the big problems around the debate of privatization, which is which has been more and more in the news over the past couple of years. The grounds for doing it are generally quite spurious, often presented in a way that I think it is distortion, is distorted. In another vein, the arguments around what would result afterward are very, very short-sighted. We present at the start of the book, you know, a kind of a thought experiment of imagine life without the ABC. Think of all these programs that you would just not have anymore. 7.30, Q&A, Rake, da-da-da-da-da. There are so many things that it, it's just impossible to imagine what it might be like without the ABC. And yet the ABC's critics just can't, ima- can't articulate what that world would look like, what the media landscape would look like, and what might come in to replace it and what kind of vibrant broadcaster we would have in turn. They, they can't. They've never been able to. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark. Our guests are Matthew Rickardson and Patrick Mullins, co-authors of a new book, Who Needs the ABC? Why Taking It for Granted is No Longer an Option. I'm going to pick up on that term, media landscape. This is a good moment to talk about Mark Scott, I think. And going back to 2009, he had a really good shove at Murdoch, didn't he, with his Empress speech, the fading Empress speech. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Mark Scott was a Fairfax man, came into the ABC, and as we look back through the history of the ABC, he was the guy that not only got the ABC really pulling its weight digitally within the digital mediascape, but actually reshaped Australia's digital mediascape in many ways. And it's ironic I say he was a Fairfax man because, Matthew, Fairfax were very flat-footed digitally, weren't mm. they? Yeah, they were. And I was fortunate enough to be at the time that Mark Scott was appointed Managing Director of the ABC in 2006. I That coincided with the time I went back from academia at, at RMIT to working back at the age as the media and communications editor. So he was one of the people I used to speak to in my role as a media writer and and of the of the various senior people in the industry at that time chief executives managing directors and so on he was far and away the one who had both the most perceptive grasp of what was going on and i wanted to talk to him because i was trying to figure out what was going on and that he was pr- projecting ahead and he was doing that so so that was good but he was also as far as i could see and from contacts within the ABC that I had at the time, he was he was pushing that vision along within the ABC, you know, which is not to disregard the work of earlier predecessors like Brian Johns, who you mentioned earlier, but I think it's fair to say his time at the ABC between 2006 and 2016 coincided with a key period in the history of the media in terms of understanding what online really meant and both in a content sense and in the role with the public, that is how you engage with the public, and and in the business model, and what you alluded to earlier with Fairfax was that the commercial media had a business model problem. You know, the big newspaper companies, News Limited, as it was known at the time, Fairfax Media, as it was known at the time, had a business model problem. As the revenue from the classifieds went elsewhere to online standalone sites, they had to reinvent their business model. They had a lot of difficulty doing that. And one of the manifesto, one of the results of that was that a whole lot of journalists lost their jobs in the past decade. The ABC didn't have a business model problem. The internet actually played to its strengths in the sense that it was radio, obviously, and television, and increasingly online. And the idea of sending out the, uh, the ABC's content to anyone and any everywhere at any time immediately, yeah, that sounds great, let's do it. You know, um, They didn't have to make money out of it. And so at one level, you know, that made things easier for them, but it's also true that Mark Scott and the leadership under him and the people within the ABC under him at the time grasped that opportunity and, and ran with it. And you mentioned podcasting earlier on, for example. I'm pretty sure that podcasting, in Australia at least, began at Radio National with various presenters there experimenting with it. And then pretty quickly over a, over a short number of years, the number of downloads for those 
podcasts, you know, of the Media Report and other programs like that, which I used to listen to, just was going through the roof. And then the commercial networks started to, oh, this podcasting thing, wow, that's okay. But it was seeded in Australia at Radio National. And so that was partly to do with Scott and what he was doing, but also clearly partly to do with the sort of people who were working in those parts of the ABC who who were attuned to what was going on in the media environment and were taking advantage of it and experimenting with it. Interesting you mentioned podcasting because those Radio National programs were just so suitable for packaging as a podcast, weren't they? There's, a again, a bit of irony here. I started a program in the mid-'80s on what was in Radio 2 became Radio National, and that was Offspring. It's now Life Matters on Radio National. And that was a live program. And up to that point, virtually every Radio 2, as it was then, program was what we used to call producing to a tin can, a great big 10-inch reel of audio tape sitting in a rack. And if you're in the studio, you just lace that up and put it to air as a pre-recorded program. And it goes back to that idea of live, doesn't it, Patrick? Live versus pre-recorded and podcasting. It's all... It's quite a tricky history, isn't it, the, the whole idea of audio and journalism, and it's gone around and around in circles. So podcasting is something that has become really important globally, hasn't it, Patrick? And I'm just wondering what we used to call radio is going. I guess you two have thought about this a lot. I noticed the BBC changed their nomenclature to video and audio rather than radio and television. So, Patrick, where do you think radio as the medium we know it now, complete with its talkback because it's live, where's that going now? Crystal balls are, I think I think it would be a, a foolish person who projected. I guess I'm asking you to look at the trajectory. What are the trends? What are the omens for the survival of scheduled media? Yes, Matthew. Again, radio, like other media forms, was seen potentially as dying because we've got all this whiz-bang stuff online which is going to revolutionize everything the inherent power of the audio medium which is that it's immediate and intimate and it's in your ear i mean you know this as well as anyone peter that what goes in your ear bypasses the brain and goes into some other part of your body and again you know this as a broadcaster the kind of relationship that the audience has with broadcasters it feels intimate they feel like they know the person that immediacy and that intimacy is actually magnified by podcasting because, you know, people are walking around with headphones on and uh, all sorts of other systems. And so the intimacy is magnified because because you've got headphones on, as we are we have now. So a medium that you might have thought might have been struggling in the in the online age is blossoming for the for those reasons and others. And I, I just think it's very easy to write off the inherent value and power of media forms without taking into account their inherent power and value. So where it's going, goodness goodness knows. I mean, I'd be with Patrick on not crystal ball gazing, but I certainly think from the point of view of the ABC that audio, if we want to call it that, will continue to be a very important part of it because of the easy portability of podcasting, as you said, and the, the natural form you're out for a walk and you listen to a half-hour episode of Matt Bevan's latest podcast, for example, which is outstanding, and you've got that live component, news as it's breaking all through the day. It's as good as any medium for getting that out. I mean, the Reserve Bank is going to make its announcement about the whether to lift the interest rates or not. You know, you'll be able to get that news not only on Twitter and so on, but via audio instantly. And you'll then have announcers talking about it. They'll bring in an expert. He'll start to analyze what that all means and so on. It's still a great medium for that. What you're talking about, Matthew, is audio. You talked about the form of the media, audio, and perhaps an interflow between radio, the live medium. Mm. It's interesting. I uh, pioneered a national talkback in Australia with Offspring, and, and then Australia Talks Back. I worked on that program for a while. That's gone now. We still have talkback on live radio, but that interflow between on-demand podcasting and radio, that's the interesting area for me, whether that's going to survive. Patrick, with the immense amount of content now available through streaming, not only from the ABC and SBS, which have great on-demand sites, but of course Netflix and the just the overwhelming cascades of content that's available to all of us now, mainly by subscription, and we've been sliced and diced up into various tribes of uh, watchers through Netflix and Stan and Disney, etc. What impact will that have on the future? And I'm thinking particularly of comedy, drama, all those other 
more entertainment-oriented programs that a public broadcaster might put out. There's a sort of a dynamic going on there which eludes me as to precisely how that's going to play out. What do you think? I think this is one area where a lot of people see reasons for pessimism for the ABC's future. They kind of say, how can a public broadcaster compete with this avalanche of content that you can get from Disney+, Plus, Foxtel, Netflix, and so on? I I see it rather the opposite. I actually see good grounds for optimism here. One is because of the cost involved. The ABC costs the average taxpayer. I think it's I think it's in the vicinity of about forty odd dollars a year um, in total to get that news, that TV content, that radio, that audio content, that online content. To pay for Netflix will set you back one hundred and twenty dollars a year minimum for a start. So there's a cost element there, but I think the ABC has a kind of a clear advantage. The second one is though that that. Those streaming services, those big content providers like Netflix and so on, give you absolutely everything. It's just a -a chock-a-block stuff that comes at you. The stuff provided by the ABC and indeed by the SBS too, I think has an element both of curation in the sense that it's a broader offering and, and it's kind of targeted to certain things. The other point about it that I think is really important though is... The ABC still has, has has local content obligations that it has to satisfy. So it will give you material that is about Australia, that is produced in Australia, that reflects Australian stories. And of course, we know that that is entirely in keeping with the ABC's history of producing uh, and broadcasting important miniseries, dramas, comedies, and so on. I'm sure you can name, going back to the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, I think I can name a couple from the 1990s and early 2000s. That is something the ABC, I think, will continue to find actually really um, strong reasons for optimism because it can do that in a way that those other broadcasters, those other providers can't. Another way I think that's quite important here, those content providers like Netflix use their algorithms to target your specific interests. So if you click on you know, an action movie, you'll just get a diet of action movies kind of thrust at you as though that's all you're going to watch. The ABC, even though it is starting to track, I think, the content that people are accessing on iView, it will still nonetheless offer a broad range of material because it's not trying to just put you into one box. It's not trying to sit there with a commercial edge. It's trying to push and get you to access an enormous amount of range of content, not just one niche interest. So I, I think there's actually really good grounds for optimism for the ABC, despite this age of abundance. Matthew, earlier we very quickly touched on Radio Australia, and another aspect of the ABC I think is also veiled from many of us, and I discovered in spades when I did a stint in Rockhampton early in my career, and that's the rural department. And every branch of the ABC had a couple of rural officers in those days, and I went out with my Nagra in those days and spoke to beef farmers out around Rockhampton, and we see some remains in the landline program, the big country program's gone. That rural aspect, that rural broadcasting aspect, which you alluded to earlier, in fact, in, in political terms, that still remains something that that unifying dimension of public broadcasting, the rural city divide. How do you see that playing out in the future? Uh, look, I, I would say, like Patrick, I'm optimistic about that, providing the ABC is given the opportunity, providing its budget is not actually cut. Because, yes, absolutely, as we said before, rural communities, regional communities, know the value of the ABC, they've known it for a long time, and the National Party or the Old Country Party MPs, they also used to know the value of the ABC. Some of them still do, that's clear, but there is also an element in which some the National Party has moved from being a representative of agricultural industries and of rural and regional citizens to being more of a representative of a particular industry such as the mining industry. And that's, if you like, narrowed its focus and in some ways and in some with some people put them slightly at odds with their those rural and regional communities, you know, who are signalling actually we do as a country need to take action urgently on climate change. And that's obviously not what parts of the mining industry have been saying and campaigning for for many years. So there's that. The other thing is that the the ABC has been expanding the number of regional outlets it has and all the evidence from various sources about news deserts, as they are called in rural and regional areas through closed newspapers in local areas, says that the ABC is needed more, not less, in the bush. And if governments of whatever persuasion could more fully fund that, 
it would both expand the ABC's reach and would consolidate that relationship with, you know, all parts of the Australian community. Patrick and Matthew, I'm sure we've both read the Quinton Dempster and Fergus Pitt Get Up backed report, Insidious and Intentional Political Interference and Harassment of the ABC. It's quite a report, isn't it? I'm going to put it straight to you, Patrick and Matthew. Is the Morrison government the most opposing of the ABC of any government we've had in Australia? Uh, I might think that the Abbott or Turnbull governments would be would be right up there. That, certainly Morrison would be in the top three, yeah. Fourth place would be the Howard coalition government of 1996 to 2007. You make the point in the book, Matthew, that all governments hate the ABC. I've, I've got memories of Gareth Evans screaming at us at a staff meeting back in the old days. Remember the, the, the furor around the reporting of the Iraq war, etc. So mm. it is both sides of politics. It's both sides. But I think, I mean, the second part of the quote was um, all governments loathe the ABC, but some governments loathe the ABC more equally than others, which is a you know tip of the hat to George Orwell's Animal Farm. And I think what we have demonstrated in, in the book you're absolutely right that there was tension between the Labor government, the Hawke-Keating Labor government and the ABC. But when you look through the sweep of history, and we looked at it pretty closely from 1983 when the ABC became a corporation, overwhelmingly it's been coalition governments that have been more overtly hostile towards the ABC than Labor governments. And the, the Labor government we haven't talked about at all is the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd Labor government, which very little controversy between them and the ABC at that time, and a great deal of actually positive support for the ABC at that time. So there's a kind of, you know, that quote is designed to encapsulate that finding. And in terms of the detail numerically, we go through that in great detail in a table towards the in tables towards the end that are compiled by Michael Ward, who's a, a former ABC executive and now a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney, who's gone into the ABC's funding in more detail than just about anyone else we know. And I would urge your listeners to have a look at that material, some of which was reprinted in the conversation recently uh, for easy access for people. It's quite damning. It really is quite damning when you look at it dispassionately and over time. Final question to both of you, an obvious question. Do it as a threats and opportunities. We're in the middle of an election. Who knows who's going to win? It could be another Conservative government, a Morrison government. It could be a Labor government. Who knows? Threats and opportunities, Patrick, for the ABC. Your book is an advocacy book. You're optimistic. You've expressed that in this conversation in the podcast. Threats and opportunities for the ABC. What are the trends and trajectories and the omens from your point of view? I think the biggest threat really is complacency around the ABC's future. We make the point in the book that tuning out and kind of not talking about or discussing the role of the ABC, except when it's trading and funding comes up, is a mistake. We think people should be more mindful of the ABC, should value it and understand the role that it provides. And we should also, in that vein, champion it. And so think about the criticism and the debate that surrounds it and push that debate into a better plane. One of the things we found is that the debate is largely had in kind of loud loud voices dominated and it that's really not the way it should be the debate should be more nuanced should be held in good faith uh, and shouldn't be captive to self-interest in particular political and commercial self-interest biggest threat is complacency the opportunities though are boundless the abc has shown over time a consistent ability to reinvent itself and to find new audiences and so assuming that it continues to be led by people of ability and by people who have a belief in its opportunities and its and its mission. I think the ABC has got a good future ahead of it. You get the final word, Matthew. Okay, I'll start with opportunities because I, I agree with Patrick and I would add that the ABC's history stands it in good stead and I think as I think one of the things that's playing out in this election campaign is actually a kind of groundswell of voices coming up saying we want better from our body politic and from our politicians than we are being given partly manifested in the so-called Teal independence, but not only in them. And so to the extent that we can contribute to that debate and encourage that along in our book, I'd love that if we could do that, because I, I do think that there, once you look at it dispassionately, the ABC not only does a lot, but, but can contribute a lot to the national culture and the national debate and discussion. The threat, in addition to what Patrick said, because I agree with what he said, I would just add the threat internally, if you like, which is, I don't think we can ignore the fact that, that because there has been such sustained hostility from both the coalition government over the past decade and from the commercial media led by News Corporation Australia, 
I, I don't think we can ignore the fact that that will have had some kind of impact on the ABC internally. And one of the things that's been noticeable, again, we are in an election campaign, so you kind of notice these things, is the rise of critics from the left, from the progressive side of politics, who are saying, you know, the ABC, you're letting me down. You're not kind of, you're running too many kind of coalition talking points in your interviews. You're not, you're not putting other perspectives. And that's not entirely new, but it's certainly louder right now. And I think that goes to a... This is my speculation, if you like. It's not in for, It's not kind of fact. It's in speculation that the ABC's internal culture has been so bashed and attacked for decades that I said I think it's having an effect. And one of the effects is that it makes the internal culture more cautious, at the very least. And therefore, you, you're not pushing out vigorously and adventurously and so on, which a public broadcaster should be doing. That's that's what I think. Would I, I would say on that. Trust you, Matthew, to open up a Pandora's box. Another whole discussion just lurking there and begging for it. Thank you, Matthew. Perhaps we can have a go at that at another time. I really appreciate you joining us in the Transit Zone for this discussion. It's an indicative discussion. I recommend the book. It's a very interesting book. And thank you to you both for putting in the hard yakka in creating the book. And thanks for being with us. Thank you very much, Peter, for your time and attention. Thanks for having us, Peter. Our guest this time in the Transit Zone... The co-authors of Who Needs the ABC? Why Taking It For Granted is No Longer an Option. Patrick Mullins, a Canberra-based writer and academic, and Matthew Rickardson, Professor of Communications at Deakin University. I've included a number of useful links in the on-screen text for this podcast, so you can explore further, dig deeper. If you'd like to email us at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. We are now crossing over to the House of Representatives, Canberra. Members are streaming back into the chamber of the House of Representatives. The Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mr. Rosier, is waiting to go into the chamber and take his seat. Mr. Chifley is taking his seat at the main table. That is the seat occupied for the past four years by the Prime Minister, Mr. Curtin, now too ill to attend Parliament. A journalists up in the press gallery are waiting to tell the story of this historic moment to all the newspapers of Australia. This broadcast is unique in the history of our national Parliament. It's the first sitting of the Parliament ever broadcast. The Speaker has gone into the House, taken his seat. In a moment, he'll call upon the acting Prime Minister. J.B. Chipley. Speaker, I ask leave of the House to make a statement on the surrender of Germany. Leave, Mr. Speaker, it is with great pleasure I announce to, to the House the complete defeat of Germany. Yeah. That pleasure, Mr. Speaker, is tinged with regret that John Curtin, the Prime Minister of this country, who has contributed so much in this war effort, is not uh, able, due to his illness, to make this announcement tonight. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure every member of this House uh, will join with me in extending, in, in feeling the same regret as I do that he is not present. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.